This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Rose Fox is away this week. On today's show, author Danica Kelly discusses her debut collection of poems, Bestiary. Then, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese tells us about the Books in Browsers conference in San Francisco. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So, it's looking uh, a little slim on both fiction and nonfiction sides. So, I'm going to start right in at our debut at number two, The Wrong Side of Goodbye by Michael Connolly. We say in a review, bestseller Connolly's canny detective Harry Bosch remains a compelling lead, but even longtime fans may feel that this creator gives him a few too many fortuitous breaks in his 21st outing, which is after 2015's The Crossing. We say at the end, the multiple contrivances significantly diminish the plot. Well, his fans are still buying. So at number four, we have The Award, a novel by Danielle Steele. We don't have a review of this, but uh, Gael de Barret is 16 years old in 1940 when the German army occupies France and frightening changes begin to occur. She is shocked and powerless when the French gendarme take away her closest friend, Rebecca Feldman, and her family for deportation to an unknown ominous fate. So that's according to the publicity material. That's at number four. At number nine, we have Sex, Lies, and Serious Money by Stuart Woods. We say in our review, hitting the lottery jackpot can be a lot of fun, as shown in bestseller Woods' satisfying 39th Stone Barrington novel. In the end, we say gun control advocates will approve of Stone's advice to Lawrence not to buy a handgun. And so this is at number nine. And moving down the list a little bit, at number 22, we have Faithful by Alice Hoffman. In our review, we say the sweet-natured latest novel from Hoffman, who's the author of The uh, Marriage of Opposites, ambles along pleasantly enough as it follows the recovery from grief of a young Shelby Richmond. We say at the end, the novel, with its hopeful message and well-intentioned characters, will appeal for the relatability of Shelby's slow coming-of-age romantic difficulties, difficulty in choosing a career and changing relationship with her parents. Moving to nonfiction, our highest debut is number 10. This is The Truth About Cancer, What You Need to Know About Cancer's History, Treatment, and Prevention by Ty M. Bollinger. And this is basically a, a handbook about cancer. We don't have a review of this, but it says in the publishing material, this isn't just a statistic. It's personal for Ty Bollinger. After losing seven members to cancer over the course of a decade, Ty set out on a global quest to learn as much as he possibly could about cancer and treatments and the medical industry that surrounds the disease. So uh, a lot of interest in that. And we also have a uh, number 13 memoir, uh, Zane by Zane. Uh, he's the superstar, uh, shares a photographic journey of his life since leaving One Direction. Number 13, fans are loving it, it seems. Number 19, 
Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, How Entrepreneurs Turn Failure into Success by Anthony Scaramucci. And uh, that's at number 19, a business book, a little bit of how-to. And finally, at number 22, Between Two Worlds, Lessons from the Other Side by Tyler Henry. Tyler Henry, he's a 20-year-old clairvoyant, star of E's hit series, Hollywood Medium, with Tyler Henry. So this one is about his journey as a medium and his young life. And that's pretty much it for our bestseller list. I'm Mark Rotella. Next up, Danica Kelly tells us about her debut collection of poetry called Bestiary. We'll be right back. I'm Nadja Spiegelman. I'm the author of I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Hi, I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we're talking with Danika Kelly. Her debut poetry collection is Bestiary. Hello, Danika. So glad you could join us. So happy to join you. <laughs> so first, congratulations on this, your first collection of poetry. Tell us, tell us a little bit about them and, and uh, uh, the concept behind them. Uh, so the book is titled Bestiary, um, and a bestiary is a catalog of mythical and real animals. Uh, it has some very old origins there. Uh, and the book charts in some ways a kind of, like my migration moving from California to the South and then sort of moving between those spaces, uh, as well as uh, quite a bit of uh, childhood trauma. <laughs> uh, and I think love uh, is also a, a big a big component of the book. Um, so... Well, uh, tell us a little bit about that, uh, this, this migration from California to the South. When, so I was born in Los Angeles, and when I uh, was around 13, we decided to, uh, via family vote, uh, to move to Arkansas, where my mom has quite a bit of extended family um, on both sides. And we moved there uh, in part uh, because we were no longer going to be able to afford to live in the house that we were living in. <laughs> so part of that was just like strategic, but my parents also wanted to move us to a place that they perceived as being much safer. Uh, we lived in Compton at the time. And so there was, there was quite a bit of violence, um, in that, in that space that uh, I witnessed and my siblings witnessed. And of course my parents, um, witnessed and sometimes were involved in to differing degrees. And so moving to Arkansas was, uh, for me, and I want to be like really clear about that, for me, it was really great. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was maybe less great for some of the other members of my family, but uh, it was a place where um, I was able to flourish. And uh, so we moved to Arkansas. I did high school and uh, undergrad there. And then I, I went to the uh, University of Texas at Austin uh, and the Michener Center for Writers for my MFA. And then I uh, lived in Nashville for seven years, uh, five of which uh, I was I was doing my PhD. So, so you you did the 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 I don't know. It seems like kind of a reverse you know migration from from the West Coast to the South. I'm actually from mm -hmm. the South, and I moved to the North. And but you mm -hmm, said it was mm -hmm. a good experience for you. Tell me tell me about that. It was in Arkansas, and you you and you were a teenager, obviously in high school. I was, I was, um, a very awkward teenager, um, <laughs> right. as I continue to be an awkward adult. Uh, 
the thing, so we, we did make a, a kind of reverse migration, um, in some ways, a, a return home. My, uh, my grandparents, uh, on all sides were from the South. So they had moved to California before my parents were, were born. Um, and so I had family in Chattanooga, uh, on my dad's side. And then my mom's side is from, as I mentioned earlier, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so for us to move back to the South, I think was, was kind of strange. <laughs> uh, but the thing that was really wonderful about it for me as a teenager was that we were, we were in schools that, I don't know, had resources that were, that were funded. Right. Um, the teachers were not so overburdened as, as like, like they had time to care about us, right? They had time to, to make um, an investment in, in the students uh, in a way that was difficult for uh, the teachers I had in middle school um, in the Compton Unified School District where there were just no resources. Like we didn't have lockers. We didn't have books. This was the late 90s. Um, and that's like in addition to like all of the violence that um, we experienced sort of on a not quite daily basis, but like pretty regularly. Um and so being in Arkansas for me, like I was, I don't know, I was, the educational experiences were, were, I think really, really, they were great. Like, I, I feel like there's no other word for that. I had really wonderful teachers in high school. Um, I had wonderful professors in college. Um, and none of the, like Arkansas is not a, not necessarily a prestigious place, but there are lots of good people doing very good work with young people there. So. And when did you develop your interest in poetry? Was it while you were in middle school in, in Compton, or, or was it when you went to Arkansas in high school? Uh, so it was in high school. Or even <laughs> college. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I didn't like to write very much right. at all um, the whole time. I was just like, writing is, is dumb. I don't know why we have to do this. Um, mm-hmm. And But somewhere... Uh, a lot happened my senior year of high school uh, with my family, and so I think I turned to that as a way to sort of express some of the frustration and pain and fear that I was feeling. Um, and I remember it was my, it was the Thanksgiving break of my senior year. Like I wrote like a, a lot of like very small, very abstract poems, and then I shared, I like printed them out. And like made a little book, and then I and then I shared that that little book with my teachers, and they read it, <laughs> uh, and they were they were very encouraging. Um, and I think from there, just there was something about that level of encouragement that I received from uh, my teachers in the high school that made me feel like, oh, well, I can keep doing this, and people will want to read it. So maybe I'll maybe I'll see what what happens there. Um, well, so let's talk a little bit about this this catalog of of creatures, both familiar and mythical, um, and and maybe as as you turn these monsters or, or creatures into recognizable portraits of humankind, as we say in our review, freedom is a thread of light snaking the canyon like an ant through a conch. Talk to us a little bit about that. I can try. <laughs> um, I think it's like a, a bit of a grand statement, like yeah. this idea that I know anything about freedom. Um, but uh, in the collection, um, one of the sort of like key ways of knowing, at least for me, was um, Greek mythology. Um, in particular, I was I was as a as a eight, as an eight year old from the time mm-hmm. I was eight. Um, I was really really intrigued by. 
um, these these narratives about gods who acted like people and they were very messy, mm. right? Like it's mm-hmm. just like a very messy kind of like God situation. And part of the way that we get so many of these mytholo- mythological beasts, right? Uh, the poem that you um, just quoted from is from love poem uh, Minotaur, right? The Minotaur is the offspring of a god and a mortal, right? And Zeus in an attempt to hide his, if I'm, if I remember incorrectly, in an attempt to like hide his lover from his wife, who was also his sister, um, turned her into a cow. Mm. <laughs> or maybe at some point, like maybe he was a cow, like whatever happens, <laughs> right. no one's doing what they're supposed to do. <laughs> and as a result, we get these, like, we get these, um, monstrous offspring. Um, and in a way, one of the things that I'm trying to track in the book or that I'm trying to come to terms with in my work is, is how am I, as a black lesbian, um, as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, um, how am I rendered as human, right? Um, how are how are the stories that I have to tell human stories? And in some ways, those stories, at least to me, have not always felt like human stories because of the way that um, my particular subject position has been framed um, in our larger cultural narratives. And there's something about inhabiting the monstrous that felt, at least for this collection, it felt right. It made sense. Um, I felt like I could say what I needed to say from that perspective. And and talking about your poem catalog, you 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 discuss this both the anxiety, but but also the excitement of growing up, or at least you address it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think like the idea of growing up means like being free, right? right? I mean, or at least like no longer being tied to or under the what is the word auspices. I feel like that's not quite the right word. Um, but like under the sort of dubious protections of my family. Right. Right. Um, the idea that I think in some ways, like I opened the book with this, with this idea that like being like looking forward, like it's not going to be easy, but it might be better. Um, than where I, where I had been. Well, um, so I, I want to talk about another well, in this poem, you, you say you grow, you are large, you are a 19th century poem. All of America is inside you. Talk about that. You, you talked about the larger cultural narrative. Um, talk to us a little bit about that, um, may, maybe in light of, of, of the election. Right. Uh, so in this moment, <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be able to say anything particularly um, cogent about the election, um, but I might end with something. Sure. Uh, uh, but what I'll say about this stanza in the poem is that in a way it was me claiming an American identity that, um, like a broad American identity, right? Sort of Whit- the Whitman-esque American identity, right? Mm-hmm. To be, to contain multitudes, Right. I wanted to claim that possibility for myself um, in that moment or or even for the reader. Right. That we are we are the sum of this history that we cannot really we can't particularly escape it. But it is inside of us. That's something that we are carrying um, in some capacity um, that what we contain is not simple. Uh, and I think in light of this election, maybe the thing that I'll say is that for the people who voted for Donald Trump, 
there is a very narrow notion of who is American. That, that the American body looks a particular way, that it, that it functions in a particular way, that it holds particular beliefs or ideals. And what I'm claiming in this poem is that the, um, that the American identity is vast and multifaceted. It does not look one way. It looks multiple ways at all times. Um, and I think a few days ago, that narrow vision won the election, but I don't think that it wins our reality necessarily. At least I hope that it doesn't. So, right. and and there's been as of today, you know, uh, protests outside in various, you know, uh, you know both coasts and middle of the mm-hmm. country uh, about exactly mm-hmm. that that narrative, that larger mm-hmm. cultural narrative. Um, but yeah. if I if I can interrupt you for just a second, in addition to those. In addition to those protests, there have been young people, people of color and queer identified people who have been attacked openly and blatantly because that narrow vision has given people permission to police bodies in a way that even a few weeks ago was understood to be a slightly less acceptable, that level of policing. But like, so there are protests, but there are also people who feel emboldened by that narrow definition of what it means to be an American that we have to reckon with. Like we need to face it and name it. Um, that this isn't all hopeful. Um, and so in ways in this poem, you're a 19th, um, uh, you're a 19th century poem, all of America is inside of you. I mean, this is something that can change context depending on the time when we lived, <laughs> you know, in, in different mm-hmm. parts of our lives, which is a, a wonderful thing mm-hmm. about this poem. Mm, thank you. Um, you explore childhood memories uh, in other poems, as you do throughout, such as your, your fourth grade autobiography. So this is back in Compton. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to do in this poem uh, was, <laughs> well, so much of the book is, is processing sort of that childhood trauma. But I, I was also trying to remember what it, what it meant to live in California at that time. And I'm like, obviously, I wrote this poem as an adult. I wrote this poem while I lived, while living in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, But one of the stories that I think people tell who are not from California about California, uh, particularly about the city, is that there is no space. Mm. That it's all, like, urban. And it is, like, I mean, that part of, like, Compton is, like, uh, very, very urban. But one of the amazing things about California is... For example, the number of fruit trees that just grow in people's yards, (laughs) Uh, that we had a yard, that we, that we had space to run outside and play. And that space was very limited. We couldn't, my parents didn't really allow us to go off our block very often. Um, But we played with our neighbors. We played in our yards. Like we sat outside and we looked at the sky. Um, And so one of the things that I wanted to, to chart or track was, that sort of natural abundance that that proliferated in this um, predominantly urban space, uh, as well as something about my family. Like, they partied every Friday. Like, every Friday, um, some part of our family would come over to our house or we would go over to my grandma's house. Uh, My grandma lived, like, I don't know, 20 blocks away from us. And my parents would drink. Everybody, and like, everyone would drink, all the adults we're always drinking, <laughs> mm. uh, but they would play dominoes or spades. We would listen to music, the kids, like all of us, like we were just like running around being kids. Um, and 
so part of that was just fun, but there was also for me at that time, the sort of undercurrent of being like very vulnerable um, and not being safe. And I also wanted to communicate that in the poem, that that was a, a key part of my childhood too. Well, you've got this line here. I just want to quote it. My favorite things are cartwheels, salted plums, and playing catch with my dad. And then you mm-hmm. go on to write, I am afraid of riots and falling and the dark. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you capture all of what you just said in those three lines. <laughs> and also just the thing about salted plums, which are delicious, mm-hmm. um, but also terrible. <laughs> Tell me about them. Um, I've never had them. So uh, we thought, like when I was a kid, we thought that that was um, like a Mexican kind of like treat, like a Mexican candy or something. Like that. It's not candy, obviously, because it's like a it's a it's a it's a, a very very dry plum because it's mm. just been like buried in salt. Um, so we associated that sort of with the Mexican candy that we ate. But as I grew up, I was like, oh, like this might be like an Asian thing. I'm still actually not sure, um, but I feel like there was like a way that we were like we had access to like foods from different cultures and we weren't always sure like what culture it was, but it, it was it was very it was very normalized. Um, we we bought salted plums from the donut truck that came through our wow that came through our neighborhood every day. Uh, so, uh, but they are they are awful and delicious at the same time. Just like really weird and so good. Um, We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Danica Kelly, author of her debut collection of poems, Bestiary. Um, we're, we're talking about some of the reflections of childhood. We're talking about salted plums, which are at times, which at, at one at once wonderful, delicious, and, and just kind of horrible. Um, uh, in another poem, How to Be Alone, we say in our review that compact scenes burn like a hot knife to an open wound. The speaker's loneliness becomes armor in the wake of her mother's death and her violent, her father's violent transgressions. Um, talk about how to be alone. So how to be alone is difficult for me to talk about. Um, it was a difficult sequence to write. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a difficult de- decision to include it in the collection. Uh, but it seemed, it seemed important. It seemed important to have a, speaker who in some ways was closer to being human, even if that speaker couldn't quite claim that human humanity in the eye. Um, at least not, not entirely. Um, I want to, I want to make a, a small point of clarification. So when I, when I moved to, when I moved to Nashville uh, in the summer of uh, 2008 to start my PhD program, Part of the reason that I moved there uh, and decided to go to Vanderbilt was because it was six hours away from my family. Uh, right before classes started, my mom went into cardiac arrest. Uh, she coded. They brought her back. So she's alive. Um, but she was dead. Uh, and in some ways, 
the person who she was is no longer here. Uh, and that has been something that's been uh, difficult to grapple with uh, in the last eight years, uh, if only because I do miss my mom and the person she was, even if that person was complicated and difficult um, and not always kind. Um, that being said, one of the things that that precipitates how to be alone um, is a breakup that, like I broke up with someone, that breakup should not have been quite as devastating as it was, but one of the things that it reinforced for me was the isolation that I felt from my family. Uh, and so all of that becomes conflated in the poem. It's I've been left by a woman I love. Um, my father continues to be a terrible human being. Um, my mother um, at the time was having some difficulty with remembering who I was because I, I'm the only one who's moved away. Uh, they all still live together in the same town uh, in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. And so there was just something about that sort of the feeling of being unmoored that I was, that I wasn't trying to capture in the poem that I was just trying to process in the poem. I wasn't trying to capture anything in it except to kind of work out how I was feeling and to keep myself from harming myself, uh, which is something that I've struggled with for a really long time. Uh, and, and writing, uh, is a way for me to, to not do that. Um, a way to, like, it's a, it's one of my more positive coping mechanisms. <laughs> uh, but after I wrote How to Be Alone, I didn't want to look at it. Um, I didn't want to share it. I didn't want anyone to see it because it felt too close. It felt too vulnerable. Well, obviously, that vulnerability that you, you've this these poems have have resonated with with so many. I mean, you, you're the winner of the, uh, for example, the 2015 Kabe Kana Prize given to a first book of poems to a. a a black poet of African descent, um, which is which is huge prize. Um, yeah. Tell us about that that feeling when when that happened. And I know you were, I think, a fellow uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm not, or, or maybe, uh, we'll explain a little bit about that and, and tell us how you felt yeah. about that prize. Uh, Kaveh Kanem uh, every year puts on a retreat for or holds a retreat for um, black poets uh, in. And it's been going on for 20 years. Uh, I think this is like the 20-year anniversary. Uh, and that was one of the, the first spaces where I felt like I could say what I needed to say and that it would, like I could be as vulnerable as I needed to or as I could possibly be in a moment and that there would be someone who would support that. Mm-hmm. Um, there were people who cared about the narratives that I was telling. Um so every year they, they hold this retreat in the summer uh, at the University of Pittsburgh at Greensburg. Uh, it's about it's around 50 poets, uh, maybe a little bit more. And we uh, workshop uh, once a day with um, the faculty. Uh, and they brought in some really amazing people. Uh, I was able to work with uh, Claudia Rankin one year. Uh, I've done some work with Terrence Hayes and Carl Phillips. And um, I... Among many others, uh, not to mention getting to spend some time with Toy Derricott and uh, Cornelius Eady, who were the founders of Cave Canem. Uh, but in that space, I just felt supported. I felt like whatever story I needed to tell, that story was a valid one. Um, and so to win the Cave Canem Prize, uh, the Poetry Prize, was 
it felt huge. Uh, it continues to feel huge. Um, I I feel supported um, by that organization in some substantive ways um, because that organization has carved out a space for people like me, um, and there aren't very many spaces that are dedicated to people like me. So uh, that feels important. And you've had your poems uh, in, in in such you know published in such magazines as uh, uh, the Indiana Review, West Branch, and, mm-hmm. and many others. What what is um how did this book come about? This book was was and is a process. Um, it, one of the things that um, I have been working on, um, I would say, in the last. Oh, what is it now? 15 years or so. Um, it's like a sort of long-term uh, self-improvement project. Uh, I've been in I've been in therapy for a really long time, and it's and it's it's been it's been very it's been very important. And one of the things that um, my practice of, of therapy um, has reinforced for me is that living is a process, right? That that being is a process. There isn't necessarily an end goal there's just like where we are right now and what we can handle right now and what new skills can we develop to handle the, the the things that life throws at us. Uh, and, and one of, one of the skills that I have that I focused on developing is, is writing, um, writing as a way of processing, um, trauma, writing as a way of processing love, feelings, getting in touch with those feelings, learning how to become more vulnerable. Um, and so these poems were written uh, after I graduated. Most of them were written after I graduated from my MFA program. I think there's one that was, uh, there's one in here uh, where she is opened, where she is closed, that is uh, quite a bit older. I think it might even predate uh, the MFA program. Um, but I spent that time, like I was working on my dissertation, I was doing my graduate coursework for the PhD. But I knew that writing was important to me. Um, and once I had enough, once I had enough poems, and this, this happened like pretty, uh, this was a couple of years after my MFA program, mm-hmm. I started to think about like what a book might look like. How might a book look? How might it function? Um, and it, it went through several iterations, um, and several sequences moved in and out. There were lots of birds once upon a time. Uh, only a few of them remain. Um, <laughs> which might tell you how many birds there were. Uh, there were so many. Uh, and, but I think after the love poem, uh, mythological animal sequence, and then uh, how to be alone came into the book, it felt, it felt complete. And I thought this is a, this is a piece of art that I've made that feels competent, that I feel good about sending into the world. Um, and I think I started sending out the book in in the form that is closest to this one around 2013 or 2012. Um, and are these so. some of the poems that had uh, uh, was was the reason for your getting the Cave Canem Prize? Yes, yes. So I have submitted uh, this same version of the book um, to the Cave Canem Prize a few times, um, and. I think part of it was just like, I was like, this is the book. <laughs> like, right. it's done. Uh, somebody will take it uh, eventually. Um, and I, I wanted it to be Cave Canem. Uh, and so I'm glad that that's, that that's how that worked out. Um, some of the poems I wrote at uh, the retreats. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, the, the poems that, that make up this book uh, have been have been in circulation for a while. And uh, the book, as, as it 
as it close to, to where it is now has been like had sort of made the, the contest rounds for, for a few years before um, being selected as a, like for a prize. So you're also an assistant professor at St. Uh, Bonaventure University where you teach creative writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've also mm-hmm. been a lecturer at uh, uh, University of California, Davis, um, and, mm-hmm. and teaching on gender, sexuality, and women's studies program. Uh, does, mm-hmm. does, does your teaching fuel your poetry or your f- poetry fuel teaching or are they two separate things? They can't, they can't be separate. Um, <laughs> uh, I love teaching so much. Uh, and one of the things that I love about teaching is having conversations with young people. Um, I actually enjoy having conversations and I enjoy, um, I mean, the wonderful thing about teaching is that I get to pick the things that we talk about. And so I say, here are the things that are important to me or here are the things that I think we need to be discussing right now. Um, and most of the time students are like, let's do it. Uh, and, and I learn so much from them. Uh, I try to, to function less as an expert in the classroom, but as someone who's, who's attempting to facilitate, um, an experience as someone who is, who has been thinking about some of these issues for a long time. Um, although in the case of, uh, say something like, uh, thinking about like issues related to trans identified people or, uh, within the realm of like, uh, uh, disability studies, like all of that's like a bit new to me, but I'm really interested in it. And oftentimes I've had students who um, have helped me understand concepts that I haven't before. Um, like I haven't understood uh, to, to the same degree before. And so I think that's connected to poetry in that one of the things that I, that I hope happens with the poem that I, that I try to, to offer up is the poem is the way that I see the world or it's the way that I saw the world at one point, right? Like, mm-hmm. does this make sense? Right. It's, it's me asking people is, does this experience resonate? Um, it's not me saying this is a, this is the experience, but this is how I understood what happened. Is this how, like, does this make sense to you? And I, I feel like that's kind of my approach in teaching as well. It's like, here are some issues. Does this make sense to you? These are wonderful questions to ask students and oneself. Um, we've been talking with Danica Kelly. You can find her debut collection of poems, Bestiary, in stores right now. Danica, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much, Mark. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese talks about the Books in Browsers conference, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. And here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about the Books in Browsers Conference in San Francisco. San Francisco. Hey, Andrew, thanks for coming on. So tell us a little bit about this show. This is a relatively new show. Yeah, indeed. Well, you know, it's been around for, I think this was the seventh one this year, but, you know, some of our listeners may know that it went on hiatus actually last year for a year, but we can talk a little more about that in the past. So a little bit about books and browsers for listeners who've never been or aren't familiar with it. Uh, it's a conference that is produced by uh, my friend and PW contributor, Peter Brantley. It's sponsored by the University of California at Davis, along with Frankfurt Book Fair, uh, and they get assistance from the Berkeley New Media Program. 
people who go to Frankfurt might also know that this conference is actually sponsored by the Frankfurt Book Fair. So a lot of those conference organizers were there as well. Mm-hmm. It brings together about 150 people from all across the media spectrum who are all sort of looking at how stories are really sort of, you know, changing in the digital age. And as for that uh, transition, I mean, they took last year off. They didn't have a books and browsers in 2015. And that was really kind of a necessary little break. I think they needed to sort of shift gears uh, and really sort of change. In the beginning, the books and browsers conference were very technical. They were really oriented towards uh, ebooks, standards, that sort of stuff. But a lot of that stuff is sort of, you know, it's done. We're, we're past that transition now. Books are now online. Stories are now online in, in different ways. And they really needed to shift gears um, more towards how people are taking advantage of these platforms uh, to tell stories in the digital age. And I think that year off really paid off. It was an interesting program. So are we talking then podcasts or, 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 or radio shows or not? So it's, as you said, not just print, it's taking advantage of other forms of media. What, so what, what do we have? Yeah, really, it was all over the spectrum. That's, I think, what made it so interesting over two days in the theater here. Um, you know, I should mention up front, too, that all of the presentations were filmed, and they're going to be online at Books and Browsers uh, at some point. So you know, if you want to Google Books and Browsers in the next few days or so, they may be up now for this year. So you can watch any of these programs uh, that took place over the two days. So what did it entail? Well, entail pretty much everything. I'll, I'll give you a sense of some of the programs, some of the things that I really enjoyed. Uh, one was a presentation by uh, a, a British, maybe Irish filmmaker named Adam Dewar. Uh, his presentation was about how he made this sort of thriller movie slash story on Instagram. Uh, it's called Shield 5. Some of, some of our listeners may know it. And it basically used what at the time was Instagram's 15-second video clips, mm. but also text and audio, uh, all these different ways to sort of create this really sort of immersive sort of spy thriller story. Uh, and when I first saw it, when I saw the presentation and he aired some of the episodes uh, on the screen, I thought, wow, that could be really cool marketing for a book. But in fact, you realize that this is actually storytelling in its own right. So I thought it nicely showed how new tools and platforms like Instagram are enabling new modes of storytelling. Uh, another really fascinating presentation was by Jane Friedhoff, who's a game designer by trade here in New York City. And she showed off this program she was working on at the time with the New York Times called Membrane. And that sort of enabled uh, authors and readers to have this really robust conversation right within the stories themselves, just by sort of highlighting text and adding questions. It was almost like a skin of commentary that laid over every news article, a a souped-up comment section. Uh, But the kicker to that is that she left the Times. The Times never pursued it. They took all the code and the IP that she worked on and put together, and it's basically mothballed and lost and has gone nowhere. She doesn't even have access to the code anymore. So that Mm. great presentation she gave about this great program doesn't seem to be going anywhere. Mm. Uh, There was a comic artist there, too. A lot of this was visual. His name is Dan Goldman. A lot of our listeners may know him. And he talked about a graphic novel that he worked on in India uh, and how he funded that that dealt with sexual violence there. Uh, and that really obviously highlighted the true power of storytelling. And there were more presentations and everything from metadata to virtual reality. Uh, and I'll tell you one more that was really fun that you should certainly look for online. It was from a, a Newsweek contributing writer named Joe Vikes. 
who gave this really great talk on the power of satire on the web. And Joe is basically what we would call a hoaxer on the web. Uh, he creates sort of these fake news stories and watches them go viral. And the best thing that he did, or one of the best things he did, I guess it's you'd have your own opinion once you see this, is that he created a public Facebook page. Uh, it gave everybody the password and just let anybody update this page or change the profile or have conversations or use text. And thousands of people would log on to this Facebook page and pretend to be whatever that Facebook profile was. And they would have conversations. Uh, they would, you know, friend one person got on and friended like every pet crematorium like in the United States, one by one. Um, and the Facebook engineers never really got wind of it. Mm. And it, it, if you think it's just a hoax, in some respects it is. But at the same time, it was like this really powerful example of just how Wild West uh, our storytelling world is right now. Uh, and the power of sort of humor to, to sort of point that out. Right. Yeah, it, and that actually sounds both brilliant and terrifying. <laughs> uh, so what about, you know, there's a lot of great storytelling as you were talking about, very, you know, lots of different media what what about books what about the actual books is that still part of the storytelling very process? much so and there were a number of presentations that dealt with uh people who are doing print and are doing books um but i think and one of the things that really struck me about this is that even though it was new media and it was technology and it was all over the place um it was that everybody who was there really still sort of closely identified themselves with the book in yeah. some way and everybody there was still very much a reader um, and I'm going to concede that, yes, uh, a lot of this books and browser stuff can seem very tangential to books and to the publishing industry, especially as we cover here at Publishers Weekly sometimes. Now, we're trying to be pretty forward looking, but, uh, you know, we are in the book business and we do review books and not necessarily websites, etc. cetera. Uh, but over those two days, I have to say it was it was really like a palate cleanser in terms of understanding how humans are now using these new tools to express, you know, our most innate trait, which is to tell stories. And, you know, for every presenter, uh, you know, books and reading really remained at the core. And the message that I took away was that books are always going to exist because it's frankly the most easy way to communicate other than having a conversation with somebody, uh, putting text on paper and just uh, reading it. There's no batteries. There's mm, no video. Right. There's nothing else. It's So it's the lowest barrier to really telling a story or passing a story on. But how people are going to change stories in an era when they have ever more powerful tools is going to change. And it's important, I think, for the publishing industry who are in the business of storytelling to have a really strong sense of how these new tools in the hands of new generation of creators are going to affect their business down the line. So uh, in that sense, it was an eye-opening show. Well, speaking of business and digital, I mean, there was a new vote. I just want to talk a little bit of something in the digital news. Um, uh, that It's a new vote that might be a potential wrinkle in the future of uh, digital books. Yeah. And we're you know not talking about Donald Trump here. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. No, we are actually. You, you, you raised a good point that we there was a, a vote this week uh, on a merger between the International Digital Publishing Foundation and the W3C. And the W3C was one of Books and Browser's early sponsors. Uh, but basically, those two organizations have approved a somewhat controversial plan to merge their organizations. And I say somewhat controversial because not everyone is happy about it. Um, and it could be a wrinkle. Now, the, the IDPF, the International Digital Publishing Foundation, um, is an organization that was really sort of set up to foster open ebook standards on the web so that ebooks can be easily preservable and accessible to people across the globe. And the W3C, obviously, you know, is, is an internet 
standard, an internet standards body too. So th- it makes sense in some way that these two organizations would merge. And you can read all about this vote on the PW website. Now there's a story up and IDPF members actually approved the vote overwhelmingly, uh, 72 to 10. And that represented about 66% of the IDPF's 130, I believe, active members. Uh, but there's been a couple of very vocal, uh, opponents. One of them is Steve Potash, who of course is, of course is the CEO of Overdrive, which is a library ebook lending platform. Now, Steve was actually a founder of the Open Ebook Foundation, which is the forerunner to the IDPF. Mm. And Steve seems to think there's something a little fishy about what's going on there. He doesn't understand why we're rushing so hard. And I think his main concern is that he feels like once the merger is done, the publishers are going to lose a little bit of leverage in terms of creating standards. Well, they're going to get sort of absorbed into the W3C and they're going to lose whatever clout they may have had. Uh, I don't think the members tend to agree with him at this point, but two points I'll make on that and we'll, we, we'll be done with it. One is that the vote only enables the negotiations to begin about a merger. So there is no merger just yet. They're still mm. going to see if it makes sense. But they now have permission to sit at the table and see about going ahead with this. And I don't know what Steve's going to do next. Uh, he put up a website. He's been sort of trying to coalesce his uh, opposition and bring in other members and get his view across. And uh, he may well have another play yet to try to stop this merger. So it could indeed proved to be a very big wrinkle for the future of ebooks, uh, but stay tuned. I think we're a long way from the finish line on that merger. All right. Sounds good. And one other question. So this Books and Browsers conference, uh, you said about 150 people. Seems like a pretty select group of people. Who who uh, who are the people who attend? Yeah. It, you know, it comes from, uh, there are a lot of publishers that were there, um, for, for sure, um, but it comes all across uh, the board. There were writers and performance artists and uh, um the web designers and gamers and filmmakers and some some publishers for sure um but i i i you know, i've been going to conferences i had a 10 year career in publishing before i started writing full time about it in publishing and i've been going to conferences every year since i've been at Publishers Weekly here for over a decade now i don't think i've missed a frankfurt or a london but while i was at while I was in publishing, I never went to a conference. They never sent me to a BEA or a London or Frankfurt. And the reason I mention this is because there's a lot of value to be had from sitting in a room with people who are your fellow publishers, as well as people from other media, especially now in this digital age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the one takeaway I think I really got from books and browsers is I should have walked out with a diploma of some kind. It felt like a masterclass. Wow. And I would encourage people, especially publishers, to, you know, it's not an expensive show to send somebody to a books and browsers. I think it was $400 for the two days, um, obviously since San Francisco. But, you know, you feel a real kindred nature. It's a real education to sit in a room and really get a broad sense of the world of storytelling around you. Um, and I really got a sense that, you know, it's fun for me to talk about it and it's fun for me to uh, tell publishers what I saw there. But boy, if we could get a thousand people to go to this show, a number of people from publishers all around the world to come in and share their stories, it would just be really valuable to the industry, I think. So, uh, so some publishers there, but, you know, I think there's room for a lot more involvement. Well, it sounds like there is. And uh, kudos to Peter Brantley for starting this whole thing again. Yeah, absolutely. And there will be a show next year as well. And one of the things that Peter wanted to do was 
start a discussion about whether books and browsers should be the name of the show going forward. Uh, and I'll say that my vote is yes, because even though it's a multimedia show and it's, it's sort of all over the place, books remain at the foundation of it. And I think we should keep it there. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for telling us all about this. My pleasure. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Belle Boggs, the author of The Art of Waiting, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another fantastic interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 